So some of you would know, others of you maybe not, that uh, Epiphany is the season of the church year that annually celebrates the revelation of Jesus to what the New Testament calls the ethne. We get the word ethnic or ethnos uh, from, from that term. And it just simply means that, that God had been dealing with the people, Israel, and that in the coming of Christ, there was a kind of a cosmic all-y-all income free. And the church has celebrated this forever. But it raises the question, at least for me, as I think about our, our theme for these next few weeks, how would an outsider see the revelation of God today? And while there's many answers to that question, it's my understanding from my work and from hundreds of anecdotal conversations that these days, amongst all the confusion around religion and church and Christianity and God and all that, that the number one doorway for someone to be open today is to see the goodness the genuine goodness, humility, generosity, love, whatever, in a Christian's life. Doesn't mean apologetics are out the window or that they don't matter, they do. People will still have questions. It doesn't mean that things like seeing the power of God through somebody getting healed or something, you know, doesn't have that kind of eye-opening experience of people, it does. But mostly what you hear today is that what most opens me to God is seeing his realness and his goodness and his power in the life of others. And I just want to say, now that we're all here and sort of settled, that this is one of the main reasons I was so delighted to ordain Kevin this morning and to know that I will get to work with Melissa and he for as as long as we have together. Um, I know Kevin's young, um, but age just, trust me, takes care of itself. I remember when I was your A. And Kevin will gain experience, and and that's all good. But experience is much easier to get than the outstanding character that I see in both Melissa and Kevin. And it makes me proud to know that that who they are um, will be magnetic to others. But as we go through this, a little aside here, a little but, a little just pause here for a moment. As we think about um, the stewardship of our lives being a part of the revelation of Christ in our world today, just a reminder that here at Holy Trinity, this is always a no guilt zone, no guilt, no hype, no manipulation, no shame, no anxiety. We don't do that. Some of us have tried. It doesn't work. It doesn't produce anything good. What we want to do for these next weeks of Epiphany is just place before our minds gently this thought. How might the revelation of Christ come to this confused world through the stewarding of our lives? And we're just going to pursue honest, loving pursuit as we always do of thoughtful growth as followers of Jesus. All right, ready to go? All right, so what's stewardship? Well, stewardship for me makes me want to ask the question, what is a human life? And what is it for? In other words, if you took me up to Napa Valley and you said, here are these lovely flowing hills of vineyards, that would mean, okay, I guess I give myself to this in that way. If you handed me a toolbox with tools, well, that would give me another idea about the meaning of me and what I'm supposed to be doing. 
And so if we think, well, what is a human being and what are they for? When I wrote my first book, Christianity Beyond Belief, I was thinking this weekend as I was preparing, I, I tried to answer this question. And, and, you know, I grew up in the era of tracks. Do you know what I mean? T-R-A-C-T-S. Did some of the rest of you grow up in the era of tracks? And I, I kept thinking, how can I simplify the question of what does it mean to be a Christian? And I came up with these four phrases. And I think it, it answers the question, at least, you know, in a simple sort of way, what is a human? I want to say the cooperative friend of Jesus who seeks to live a constant life of creative goodness through the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of the ethne, for the others, for those who are not a part of God's present family. If we wanted to put it in more kind of biblical language, we could reduce it from those four to just two, to love God and to love your neighbor. And for us, this would explain the journey inward, learning to love God, and the journey outward, learning to love our neighbor, love our neighbors, we love ourselves. So, if I were to just kind of try to simply um, summarize stewardship, I might say something like this: that you take what God has entrusted to you—your gifts, your talents, your passion, and your compassion—and you just begin to put it to work. And you trust that God has given you something real, and so you begin to act on it. But can we just go back for a minute? You trust that what God has given you is something real. That your compassion is not just a dopey sentimentality. I mean, it might be, but I doubt it. And your hope that others would see things clearly could very easily be the first step towards teaching. That what if God has given you something real? And in that sense, it can't be reduced to the kind of aptitude tests you might get from an HR department at work. As good as those are, I'm not putting them down. But you can't equate them with something necessarily real that God has given you that is actually good for the world. So you trust that God's given you something real, and you just begin to gently, humbly act on it. You kind of throw caution to the wind and let your light shine in the world. Well, the, this week, I want to talk about the stewardship of our spiritual gifts and our natural abilities. Let's start with natural abilities. Uh, the scriptures don't talk a lot uh, about natural abilities. It's very hard to find some place where it feels like it's really, you know, speaking clearly about this. But I think we can say a couple of things. And that is that each of us are born with a specific set of personal abilities. You might think of it this way. You were born as a genuine self. You were born as a genuine self, and it's good. See, I tend to see people smarter than me and wonder about my genuine self. Or I think of a really good artist, and I wonder about my, is my self genuine? Is it real? Is it good? Like, I can't play an instrument like that person, or... I can't do visual arts like that person. Can't write poetry like that person. Now I want you to just begin to think with me. All the forces in your life that cause you to daily doubt your genuine self. Or as the psalmist put it, train up a child in the way that he should go and when he or she's old, they won't depart from it. Now I know everybody who's raised kids thought that was a text on discipline. 
right? I don't think it actually is. The Hebrew there says, train up a child according to her or his bent. So think of like a climbing rose or a climbing plant of some sort. The Lord has birthed that and given it its shape. And as we come alongside people, in this case, a child, but I want you to think with me this morning about coming alongside the inclinations of your own heart. And as you begin to shape it in the way that you have been given a God-given bent, then it will just go in that direction naturally. This is what I think God was getting at when he said to Jeremiah, who wondered about his genuine self. I mean, we could probably have Kevin come stand up here, or Beth, and talk about all the times they wondered about their genuine self and how this rolls up into a calling to serve God as a priest or a deacon in the church or a layperson in whatever way. And so God knows that we wonder about these things and we feel this way. And so he said to Jeremiah, who was in that exact place, hey, Jeremiah, relax. I formed you in your mother's womb. You have a genuine self. Now, get this. And it's that genuine self, Jeremiah, that I'm calling The same thing could have been said to Moses. Moses, it's your genuine self. It's who you are that I'm calling. Yeah, yeah, I know you don't speak that great. Okay, we'll deal with it through Aaron, you know, whatever. But it was Moses' genuine self that was being called. You Look at me, you will never begin to pursue the stewardship of your life if your most fundamental thought of yourself is to wonder about it or denigrate it. See, there's nothing to put out there. But if you can come to the place that I have a genuine self, and yeah, it's different than everybody else's, and and I'm probably never going to be the best in the world at anything. Like, I'm probably never going to be the world's best saxophone player. But that doesn't mean God doesn't want to use me in music. So do you see the choice that's before us as we begin to think about this stewardship? It's either to minimize the genuine self that God's created us, And that is not a good platform from which to then be light in the world. Or we accept it. Say, yes, God has put a bent in me. It was put there in my mother's womb, and I just need to work with that. Now, the Bible's a little more clear, obviously, about spiritual gifts. And we read the passage this morning. And essentially what I want to say in this context about this passage is that gifts are just simply... um, Particular ways, moment by moment. So these differ a little bit from the bent you have. Like like you might have a bent towards teaching, let's say, but that doesn't mean God couldn't use you to heal the sick. Or you might have a bent towards compassion and justice, but that doesn't mean that God couldn't use you sometimes to teach. So what this passage, I think, wants us to give us is an imagination that there are particular ways in which the supernatural power of God flows through us giving us capacities to operate in love and in power. So the text tells us there are different kinds of gifts. But in all of them, and in every one, it's the same God at work. So now remember Napa Valley and the toolbox? Remember that? So now we ask the question, God, why did you give the church these gifts? What are they for? Here's an interesting question. How do they make us more human? 
How do they actually make us more the people that you've called us to be? And then, of course, it raises the question, what do we do with them? And Peter gives an answer in 1 Peter 4. He says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards. Do you hear that? Hear what animates Peter? We do it as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So this now gets us squarely to stewardship. And it gets us squarely to our reading from the gospel this morning. So um, you need to just remind yourself of the context here. This is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. Um, Jesus is teaching the 12 here. And he's teaching them about what it'll be like when he is no longer with them. And as things come to their end. So he tells this parable that we heard Kevin read that he gave talents, five, two, and one, to these people. Um, Don't have time to go into this, but this is a vast sum of money. It would be like Jesus saying, I gave each of you five million or five billion or something. I mean, this is a vast sum of money. You know, the, the illustration here, they would have heard in their minds a vast sum of money. Let's say five million, two million, one million. And he entrusted it each according to their ability. That is to say, their God-given bent, what was already in them. And then now here's the last times part of it. So the master then comes back to settle accounts or to, you know, put things right. And the one who had given five talents, one who had given two talents, had invested their talents. Of course, he says to them, well done, the good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in what I gave you. But the person with one talent the person may be more, most likely to doubt their genuine self, plays it safe, and buries his master's money, essentially saying, I don't want to play. You, you guys can play. I don't want to play. And we get a glimpse into this person's psychology where in the message it has him saying, Master, I know you have high standards and you hate careless ways and that you demand the best and make no allowances for error. I was afraid I might disappoint you. And then the message has Jesus saying, that is a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. And so what I want you to see in this parable is that the underlying differentiating factor between those who had five talents and two talents and, and the person who had one talent, the differentiating factor between these three servants is relational. When you get right down to it, it's not business acumen. It's not an understanding of futures or stock markets or real estate. When you get right down to it, it's relational. I didn't trust you. I didn't want to play. It was their view of their master. The, peop- the, the persons who had been given five and two talents had a view of their master of like, great, let's play. And the other one said, no. And so what Jesus is trying to say here is stop imagining God as a harsh taskmaster who will knock you down the minute you make the wrong step. See, the stewardship principle is that we're expected to use God's investments, 
those things he's given us, to use them wisely, to spend those gifts or investments in the cause of serving others. But as I said, and I want to say again, in non-anxious striving. And that's not just because gentle peace is such a value of ours, but it, it doesn't take a genius in cultural studies to say that the relationship between the church and the world is anxious enough. The last thing I need to do is send you out into your world full of anxiety about the nature of that conversation and how, gosh, I used to be kind of good at sharing my faith, but now I can't do it anymore. I don't know what to do. And if you fill yourself with anxiety about that or guilt or shame, it just makes the conversation even more awkward. Rather, the vision the New Testament gives us is John 15. Just abide and you'll begin to bear much fruit. Submit what you are and who you are to God. This notion of abiding, um, very much like the gospel text we read this morning, is an invitation to participate in what God is already doing. So that stewardship then just means to come fully under the reign of God in every area of our lives. Stewardship then and this is a vision I want you to see, is really an aspect of followership. Stewardship is actually just a subset of an overarching commitment to follow Jesus. And this is now how we get to the real heart of the psychology of our gospel reading this morning. We will not follow someone who we don't believe has our best interests at heart. And when that Guy received that one talent, and he thought, you don't have my best interests at heart. What you are is a harsh taskmaster. And what you got going for you is you just want to judge. Therefore, I don't want to play. Now, I do want to sort of be ethical, so I'll bury the talent so it doesn't get lost. I mean, that's what he did. He dug a hole and buried it somewhere secretly, so that it wouldn't get lost or ripped off, and I'll give you back what's rightfully yours, but I don't want to play. I don't want to get out on the field where I could be misunderstood or somebody could mock me or I could be judged for being a Christian or somebody might think I'm over-religious. I mean, I don't want to actually start using my life and stewarding the God-given bent that was in me because that makes me vulnerable. And you will not be vulnerable unless you trust and that's why at the heart of this is not a business calculus. As tempting as it is to see it that way. That's the analogy. But the analogy is meant to reveal a relational issue. So the invitation here is to know the character of our master well. And to know that Jesus is generous. We don't have to play it safe. If we can see and know the master as he is and our lives as they are, then they can just simply be an overflow of our desire to see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God come through our lives. So as we get into this epiphany series and we get into this notion of the stewardship of our lives as they actually are, as the way that God might be seen in the world, what if we began this morning by just simply and honestly asking regarding our spiritual gifts and our natural talents? What if we just ask three questions? What? First of all, what? And here I would just encourage you to look at your history. How has God used you? 
And why? I would ask you to begin to look at your context. What is it that God was doing? When you did your thing, what was the purpose underneath that? What was the why? And then, of course, that would raise a third question, at least to me, and that is how? How do I begin? And I would say become as a child and risk and learn because it's only, get this, it's only as you are real in the world according to the bent God has given you that God is made manifest, that there is epiphany. You know, I said last week, I think, uh, who, would ever, who would have ever thought of spiritual directors doing evangelism? Spiritual directors kind of do their thing. Well, I know that I know that I know in the deepest parts of my being that there could be no more suited person to help confuse people today have conversations about faith than those who are trained to exquisitely listen. Exquisite listening has an amazing per, um, persuasive power today. Amazing. I mean, unspeakable. And so we just take whatever we are and we just think, okay, this is who we are. This is what I can bring to the table to help God be manifest in our world. So we're putting together in this series Epiphany and Stewardship and this morning beginning with our gifts and natural abilities. And, and I, I just want to begin us Uh, help us to begin this morning to think about what would be some spiritual practices for a life of epiphany? What what could we do that would just begin to help us be present? Sometimes missiologists call this incarnational practices, or I just want to say what would help us um, learn to be gently, graciously present to our actual life? What would be some practices where we could stay connected uh, to this world for being there when needed with the gifts that God has given us? So maybe we could put this, we'll put these on the website somewhere or something. I don't expect you to certainly write them down or remember them, but I want you to at least hear them and let them work on your imagination for a bit. What if in the next five or six weeks of Epiphany, we began to just take on the practice of noticing others? Just notice the people in your life. You'll be shocked. If you just start to, to do this, like if you just take tomorrow or even this afternoon, just try this out for size. You begin to notice the people around you. What you'll be shocked at is not only noticing, but you'll be shocked at how little you actually notice the people in your lives. We just don't. I, I don't know what it is. I don't, again, no judgment, no condemnation. We don't do guilt or shame. I don't know what it is. I'm just, it's just an honest observation. We just tend to think about everybody else as an extra in a movie about me. <laughs> and we don't tend to notice extras, Right? We notice Tom Cruise or, you know, whoever. We notice the star. And so just take it on as a gentle little spiritual practice. Just begin to notice. Maybe make acquaintances. And then secondly, live a life of humble love among them according to the bent that God's already given you. And then listen, pray, dialogue, and, and, and give up control of outcomes or feeling like you have to answer every question. Um, Someone once said, once you pick up a conversation in order to steer it, it's no longer a conversation. It's a pitch. 
So give it up. You don't have to go there. I know all of you are worried about pitching. Give it up. You don't have to do it. But you can just be there in dialogue and trust that what Jesus said is true, that when you're called upon to give an account for your faith, in this case, maybe not in front of magistrates like he meant to his first hearers, but I find this to be fundamentally true. When, you're, when the moment comes when a conversation partner says to you, I'm, I'm not sure what I think about the Bible or I'm not sure what I think about atonement or whatever, trust me, you, you will know what to say and what to do. And it could just be, I don't really get atonement either. How about, let me go think about this. And I'll go find a chapter in a book. And how about if we have coffee next week and we'll just sit down and read it and talk about it. Because I'm not sure I really get the mysteries of the atonement either. Someone might say to you, scary thing like, well, how can I know the Bible's reliable? And you can say, I don't know. I've always wondered the same thing. Let's go to Wikipedia. You know, get out our smartphones. Right? Or whatever. And you just begin to have a dialogue trusting that God is generous. That he's not waiting to slap you down for being dumb. That he's teasing out your God-given bents and that he will use you in these conversations the way you are. And then this frees us then, fourthly, to just begin to serve in small, genuine ways. That the hope is, number five, thinking of epiphany, that this love will begin to reveal God's love. So I want you to think with me now as we're done here. Just begin to think with me. Who, who is it that you do notice? A week or so ago, I asked you to think of somebody and write their name in your phone so that you could begin to pray for them. This is a little like that, but maybe something different. Who is it that you find yourself noticing lately? And maybe you could ask yourself why. And maybe you could begin to ask yourself, what has God given you in the way of natural abilities and spiritual gifts through which you could look for opportunities to love and serve those you notice? Thus being the epiphany, the revelation of God.